Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 48 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, you sound you sound like it's the end of the semester. Steve, my, my voice has gone grown weak in the service of my students. I thought, and, uh, were, were you howling at the college football playoff selection committee? <laughs> no, no, I enjoyed that. No, last week we had uh, we had a bunch of one-on-one sessions, and uh, by the end of two days of that with the students, uh, I was talking like this. That's actually why we didn't do an emergency podcast last week, right? Mm, indeed. We, we left that to the Lawfare podcast for all the, the Flynn Dightment sanity. Oh, man. Lawfare podcast has been killing it in rational security, too, with the, uh, the names. Uh, Flynn works well with a lot, <laughs> a lot of fun twists. It's like, it's like uh, good for all seasons. Um, so, so college football playoffs, were you as shocked as I was that Texas did not make it into the Final Four? You know, I was kind of hoping for a little Hail Mary there, but, um, you know, I'm pretty excited about the old... Texas Bowl. <laughs> Texas is in the I mean, Texas come on. Bowl. I mean, I mean, if you're so, so I, I can't. I mean, you played football. I, I, I sort of played half a year of freshman football. You know, you, you, you go to the University of Texas. Like you play big time college football, and then your reward from you know for doing all of that is to go to the Texas Bowl. Hey, it's been years since UT was in a bowl, and the last time was the. Texas Bowl, where we got thrashed by Arkansas in Charlie Strong's first year. There we go. We'll have a lot more to say about that in a minute. We uh, will. Will we say anything about the law? Uh, oh, yeah. law. This yeah. is a law podcast. Yeah, let's do some of that. So uh, here we are, Tuesday, December, oh gosh, 5th. Yep. Uh, last Tuesday of the semester. Woohoo! All right. That means by this time next week, we'll be kicking back with some uh, Mai Tais and margaritas and Grading and, and exams to draft yeah. and uh, hands to hold and all that. But but before we get there, Bobby, there's some stuff going on. Yes, there's some stuff. We as noted, there is the, there is the Flynn Dightment. Flynn Dightment, uh, uh, which which else? you know, well, I, I I I'll confess, I had grand plans Friday. I, I had nothing on my calendar. It was going to be a catch up on work day. Got a <laughs> lot of stuff off my desk. I got right as I'm pulling into my parking space after you know dropping Maddie off at daycare. I get the alert. About Michael Flynn's about to plead guilty. I'm like, oh, Jesus. There goes your day. There goes there goes everyone's whatever. Well, there went his day. There went his day. All right, Although, so, actually, I, I will argue that it was a pretty good day for him. I, he made out pretty well, given, yeah, given yeah. all the other things. Um, so we're going to talk briefly about the Flynn indictment. We're going to talk about the sort of legal debate that has been resurrected in response to the Flynn indictment, which is, can a president obstruct justice? Oh, I don't know. For example, by confessing to it on Twitter. Interesting. It'll lead to some questions about lawyering as well. Indeed. Um, we have, I think, a fair amount to say about the John Doe habeas case. I realize that we are a broken record at this point. Um, somebody's got to do but it. But somebody's got to do it. I mean, you know, I, I, I know we have listeners out there who include reporters who are working hard on these cases. The media coverage is not matching how hard people are working to cover the story. So we'll have a little bit of an ACLU v. Mattis update. And then, speaking of updates? Travel ban update. The Supreme Court, I think a little surprisingly, Bobby, yesterday allowed uh, version 3.0 of the travel ban to go into full effect while the appeals are working their way back up to the Supreme Court. I, I wasn't surprised that that was the result. I was a bit surprised by the vote. So we'll, we'll talk about that a bit. Um, also yesterday at the Supreme Court, huge oral argument in the Carpenter case. Also, I would say, a bit surprised by how that appeared to have gone. We're going to talk a bit week. about yeah. that recap. Last oh, it's Wednesday. last week. Last Wednesday. Yeah, your, your oh, days are blowing. I'm sorry. Yesterday <laughs> was the really big recap in the New Jersey sports betting case. Chris Christie. Well, I do want to talk about that a little bit, even though it's a little off topic. And, um, and the Rubin versus Islamic Republic of Iran case, which I actually could say uh, a relevant word or two about. All right. So we'll have a bit of a, a Supreme, Supreme Court, Court round table, yeah. but we're not going to talk masterpiece cake, probably. We're not? Well, you can. No, we're not. <laughs> no, um, not. This, this, is not a, this is not a religious liberty podcast. Um, you want to talk, Bobby, a bit about how we are getting pretty close to the deadline for a reenactment of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence yeah, Surveillance this, Act? So the 702 watch is now in high gear, and there's some, there's some tea leaves to be read, and we'll, we'll make some, some projections on that. Um, or uh, shockingly, right, Congress is, is leaving it all for the last minute. Yeah. Finally, uh, our frivolity, I think we will quickly handicap the, the college football playoff. As we noted, breaking news, Texas is not in it. Um, <laughs> and, and then we also want to talk about some, some holiday movies to get in the spirit. I don't know about ho, you. Ho, ho. I am super excited for some of the movies coming out in the next month. Absolutely. And this Friday, season two of The Crown. I am excited about that. I thought season one was fabulous. I, Absolutely amazing. I thought Lithgow as Churchill. Oh, man. Unbelievable. Brilliant. But, yeah. of course, we're Americans. You know, the, we love, that. We love, we love an American playing Churchill. Yeah. 
That would have been good no matter where Lithgow well, was from. I think that's probably right. All right. So um, speaking of, of actors, caricaturing actors, let's start with Michael Flynn. All right. So we have an indictment. And Steve, um, what would you say is the right way to read the tea leaves of what he actually pled to? Um, you've got um, a line to the FBI, FBI charge. And, and some people said, see, it's, it's only about stuff that happened. Hashtag nothing burger. Yeah, yeah, nothing burger. So is it a nothing burger? No. <laughs> well, why not? Okay. So, so I think there are, to me, and I'm curious if you had the same reaction, three big takeaways from the Flynn indictment. Um, so the first is, in the actual charging document, there's a whole statement of all the other stuff they could have charged him with. Right, So the special counsel went out of its way to be like, hey, you're pleading to one count of lying to the FBI, even though you know we probably could have charged you under FARA for multiple felonies. As we've observed many times in the show, he was kind of red-handed on at least the turkey side. Right, on the, the Foreign Agents Registration yeah. Act, um, 18 U.S.C. Section 219, because some of this happened after he took office as National Security Advisor. Right. Um, perhaps he made additional false statements to the FBI. Perhaps there was a Logan Act uh, uh, <laughs> a charge out there. We'll talk about the Logan Act. Anyway, so big point number one, right? The special counsel was quite clear that they had plenty more on Flynn than just this one lowly line of the FBI charge. Which signifies that it was, in fact, a deal, not just, hey, this is, this this is, is all he did, he's pleading to it, and it's over. On the contrary, it's, it's a cooperation agreement. Yep. Okay. Uh, to me, big point number two was paragraph, I think it was four of the Statement of Offense, where the um, special counsel lays out um, various things that Flynn had done behind the scenes to attempt to get the Russians to vote against a Security Council resolution with regard to the Israelis in December of 2016. Um, this is, you know, I, I think it's not a smoking gun from a criminal perspective, Bobby, because, again, the Logan Act, I think, is not necessarily the, the be-all, end-all that some folks want it to be, but a pretty, I think, powerful piece of evidence that even as the Obama administration was conducting this foreign policy, folks within the transition, right, were working with the Russians in ways that might have been at least somewhat antithetical to those policy ends. So this gets to an important distinction, activity within the transition period yep. and activity during the election, yep. right? Um, and have we seen any evidence that Flynn has owned up to anything that was during the election? Not yet. Right. So but then and so possibly. And so the third thing I want to take away from this is the sort of emphasis in the in the the plea agreement that this is all predicated upon Flynn's cooperation to the fullest extent possible, which, again, suggests that they're expecting that they be on the special counsel are expecting such cooperation to be forthcoming. No, that's right. And of course, in the, in, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that the way this works is you, you start with the Manaforts, et cetera. You, you work up to, way up to the Flynn's. And the question is, as long as they're doing deals for cooperation, they're they're moving up the chain. And, right. the, and the interesting question all along has been Who's not next? whether, yeah, everyone understood it was going to get to Manafort and Flynn. That was, that's the low-hanging fruit. Where, where else, if anywhere, does it go? Now, it's no guarantee it's going to go somewhere, but boy, there's plenty of investigative activity still underway. You've now got the, the active cooperation of Mike Flynn, which may or may not uh, point up much higher, may or may not point backwards in time to the election period. We don't have any reason to, to assume that it will, but it might. Um, there's other stuff afoot. There's been a report that a Deutsche Bank received a subpoena, I believe. Uh, I think that was reported that, that the investigation is trying to collect information. And, and that raises all sorts of interesting questions. Is the investigation uh, shifting focus going or, or revealing its focus to be broad enough to encompass uh, Trump family financial right. in interests that intersect with the Russians? That's, that's going to be the sort of thing that if it begins to become really clear that's where they're going, I think that'll be when we need to look to see if maneuvers take place to try to shut him down. Totally. And I think that, I mean, President Trump has said publicly that that's a red line. Um, of yep. course, you know, President Trump is, I think at this point we can say, um, notorious for decreeing things to be red lines at which at, that it, will trigger action points. Just President Trump? Well, <laughs> this may be a presidential phenomenon in recent years, perhaps. Indeed, but I mean, I, I mean specifically, like when President Trump says he's going to sue people, Right. Sure, sure. The, yeah, well, the suits have look, a way of not getting brought. He, he is a bully. And so um, he, there's bluster. All right. So speaking of President Trump and, and bullying, right? So um, that would have been plenty of news, right, for the weekend in Le Affaire Trump until the president took to Twitter. Well, until someone, someone took, to, took Twitter. to Twitter on Saturday through the president's account, right? Um, and the I, I want to pull up the exact 
tweet, right? Because I want to get this right. Um, the president tweeted, this was Saturday morning, I had to fire General Flynn because he lied to the vice president and the FBI. Um, Bobby, that's an interesting statement from the president, right? It seems to be suggesting that the president knew, right, the word because, that the president knew at the time that General Flynn was dispatched unceremoniously from his position as national security advisor um, that Flynn had lied to the FBI and therefore committed a felony, and that when the president subsequently asked then-FBI Director Comey to, quote, take it easy, unquote, on Flynn, and indeed even fired Comey, he did so knowing that Comey was investigating a felony of which the president had direct knowledge. So here's here's the interesting question. We got we got to break down the pieces and look at them. Kind of this is the obstruction of justice question. Yes, and and a lot of people are fired up about this. And I think the first thing to say is, let's keep in mind you can have totally separate views and opinions on a few different things here. A is is there a, a crime been committed by the president? Because when you talk obstruction of justice, first and foremost, you're invoking a particular federal right. crime. Right. 18 U.S.C. Section 1512. Right. So are you saying that the president committed a, a violation of 1512, and and then that leads you down the the path of all right, can the president be indicted while in office, et cetera? Um, there's a totally separate question, which for some people, they don't see the distinction, but this is an important distinction. In any event, does this increase the case or improve the case for impeachment or other form of non-prosecutorial, but nonetheless really important action? Right. And it's worth stressing that in the impeachment articles that the House of Representatives was considering at the time of his resignation, right, for Richard Nixon, those articles included an obstruction charge. President Clinton, one of the two articles that the House voted to impeach him on was obstruction of justice. So there's at least precedent for impeachment based upon obstruction of justice as defined by the House of Representatives. Um, whether the president could be indicted is, of course, this age-old constitutional debate. The Office of Legal Counsel has said the answer is no. Um, the, special, the independent counsel at the time of the Clinton investigation in a memo that I think Brett Kavanaugh had a hand in said yeah. yes, right? So there's so, debate out there. So Whitewater thought, the Whitewater investigators thought yes, and special investigators of presidents think yes. The Justice Department OLC tends to think no. Surprise, surprise. Um, Practically, I'm not sure it matters. What's the closest we've ever been to actually getting an answer to that question or having the question put? I mean, I guess, right, Nixon was named as an unindicted co-conspirator, right, in the mm -hmm. indictment against John Mitchell and the rest of the Watergate 7. Yeah. So I guess that's the closest. Yeah, so, yeah. But, I mean, listen, the reality is uh, I, I've, I, for one, have found this question to be largely a distraction because practically— Right, the president's not going to be indicted yeah. for obstruction. Probably not. Right, he's going to fire every single lawyer who works for him, including, by the way, Bob Mueller, long before an indictment against him is proffered. Right, so so this is really, I think, folks running around with their with their heads on fire, right, and missing the larger point, which is what is the political significance of these developments? Exactly. So so obstruction as a concept that could be a, a charge, but obstruction as a a term describing something that's a reason for political action. Um, and when you make that shift, does that mean we don't actually care as much about the nuances of how in the criminal setting obstruction technically works and we instead are just interested in, does this increase the chances that in fact what Trump had been doing was to try to squelch the investigation? Because if so, I can't say I'm actually very surprised to learn that he was in fact trying to squelch the investigation. To me, that that's kind of already factored into the stock price. No, I think that's right. And so part of what I find exasperating, right, about the weekend of news and, and all of this is it has now devolved into a fight over legalities, right? right? And we're missing what I think is the larger story, which is Michael Flynn has now pled guilty voluntarily, right, to lying to the FBI about coordination and contacts, at least between the transition and the Russian government, right, which certainly at least leaves some credence to the theory that there might have been pre-election contacts, given how vociferously folks in the campaign, in the administration, have denied even the transition contacts. Well, that's, see, to me, this is why that line between the election and the transition is so important. Um, once in the transition, the, in that phase, the policy case for having contact is is much different, right? I but mean, then, but then, why hide it? No, no, the t totally separate question. So obviously, the line's totally unacceptable and inappropriate and wrong, and, and he deserves to have been pursued for it. Then the interesting question, though, becomes: Is it if you set aside the line, like if you'd owned right. this from the beginning? Right. Um, what will we say about it? Now, this is why people are drawn to talk about the Logan Act, because they want to yeah. say it's, it's, it's somehow wrong. And if it's not wrong on policy, it's legally wrong. 
to have contact with the foreign powers in a way that might be designed to foil the lingering day of foreign policy. Of the current the president, president, right? We have one president. Right, right. And, and that's all true. We have one president. But I also think that it's not uncommon for transitions to have contact. So, so I want to say, I mean, I want to be as clear as I can. If president, if president-elect Trump had held a press conference, or forget a press conference, had just issued a public statement where it says, I am very disappointed that the United States is abstaining from this resolution. Right. Right. I think we should vote against it. Right. That is his prerogative. Right. I would be the first person saying you cannot apply the Logan Act in that situation. The president elect is about to be president. It is his right Mm -hmm. to express a public opinion on what is in the best foreign policy interest of the United States. Here comes the but. There's a but, right, which is the fact that this is not the the tack they took suggests to me one of two things. Either there was more coordination going on, some of which they thought was legally problematic, or at the very least they thought it would be politically damaging and problematic if it was public that they were taking these steps to counteract the then-present U.S. foreign policy interests. Either way, right, that suggests that they were doing something that's wrong. Wait, ha- why is the latter wrong? If, they, if, they, if their judgment was, well, we can't come out and do this publicly. There's going to be a political firestorm. Let's just let's do it privately. Why is that wrong? Because I think what they're saying is, like, so I think what that, that's conceding, right, is that if this were out in the limelight, we would get in trouble for it. And oh, so therefore we should keep it silent. Of, I think that doesn't make it wrong. I think it makes it a political judgment that they decide the friction they'd get is – is, is too much. It's not worth the But candidate. friction from whom? They are, they're already elected, right? Like, why are they hiding from a foreign policy that they're about to be advancing publicly? Well, you know, look, the, the campaigns never end. You're constantly trying to manage your political standing. And if they made the judgment that coming out now and working against the administration's policy was going to result in lots of editorials or opinion writing or podcasters like us griping right. about it, I think it's, you know, whether we agree with that judgment or not, it's certainly within the realm of, of reasonable choice to do that. Then one of two things is true, right? Either they're all idiots who have been lying for no no reason, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Right. So, so th- this one says razor. No, no. Listen. Either, th- either all these people are therefore idiots who, once they're pressed on the subject, should have just come clean. Yeah, but that that happens all the time. That's fine. But or there is in fact still something else that hasn't been uncovered, well, and there was something clear. more nefarious I, going on. I, I, I am perfectly open to the possibility that there was in fact election time contact. That it seemed obviously there was at some levels of the campaign. And I think it probably runs pretty high. And uh, and I and let me just be clear. I also think there's probably all kinds of financial shenanigans yep. that have been going on for years. Um, I don't draw any inference from the fact that Flynn was having non-public communications during the transition period. I think it's it's criminal and wrong that he lied about them. Right. But if, if but if we took this as a hypothetical blank slate solution where you didn't have all this other stuff and just asked, can the uh, transition team start having contact? Yeah, with you and I both think the answer to that is yes. Yeah. But I think you and I also agree that there's enough here that any whoever's in charge, right, that there's enough here that any reasonable investigator oh, sure. would want to keep going. Well, cause, Right, because we're not dealing with the hypothetical. We've got all this other stuff. Right. The investigation certainly okay. needs to go there. Um, so one last point about the Logan Act, because I think I, I really want to try to put this to bed. Right? Good luck. Good luck. Um, so listen, everybody, the Logan Act, it's a lovely idea. Right. It actually probably makes sense in the abstract as a policy proposition that a truly private citizen should not be allowed to actively work against the foreign policy interests of the United States directly with foreign governments. There are two different and I think equally significant reasons why none of these people are going to be prosecuted for violating the Logan Act. All right. Number one, the Logan Act is a content based restriction on speech which means under the Supreme Court's modern First Amendment jurisprudence, um, it is subjected to strict scrutiny. And strict scrutiny, as I think what Professor Gunther is fond of saying, is strict in theory, fatal in fact, right? Very few laws pass strict scrutiny. But see, humanitarian law well, project. which is wrongly decided. All right. <laughs> Says you. <laughs> Says me. Um, so, but reason number two is part of why you would never get there is because there's a phrase in the Logan Act itself that the relevant speaker is acting, quote, without authority of the United States, unquote, that I, for one, think any court would interpret to avoid the First Amendment problem and to therefore not apply to, for example, speech by members of Congress, right, mm-hmm. a la Speaker Pelosi right. or the Tom Cotton letter to Iran, right? right? Or I would argue speech transition. by transition yeah. teams. No, I think it's got to be right. That, that's got, and then we layer in the desuetude. The, the, right, the fact the that it's never of... been used, right? So there's, <laughs> right. there have been two indictments. <laughs> that little fact. Right, there have been two indictments in the 218-year history of the act and no actual prosecutions, which means if you're Bob Mueller, why in the world would this be the test case for the Logan Act? Yeah, and chances are good that that's not at all what he's thinking. No, so I think it's entirely possible 
possible, as I think Eric Posner and Daniel Hemmel uh, pointed out in the New York Times on Monday, that the Logan Act is being used for leverage, right? That, that Mueller is pointing out that these are serious crimes under current U.S. law. And if you're a criminal defendant, you really want to take a chance, right? Um, but the odds that any of this ends with a prosecution under 18 U.S.C. Section 953, I'm not holding my breath. Yeah. It, question. Is it true that the Logan Act is named for Wolverine? So officially, the Logan Act is named after Dr. George Logan, a Pennsylvania Quaker who was trying to thwart the foreign policy of the Adams administration. But of course, we know that at various points in time, Wolverine has adopted different identities. That's right. I mean, sometimes he's like super Canadian. Then he's like in Japan for a long time. He's in World War II. It's so, so, so you're saying is the next X-Men movie should be called The Logan Act. The Logan Act. Is that like Sister Act? It's like a mashup <laughs> Wow. Logan and Sister Act. This is, this is going off the rails quickly. Oh, boy. So why don't we move along to, to actual legal developments as opposed to speculation? ACLU v. Mattis. So interesting developments. In AC, right? the, the judge finally had a hearing on Thursday. Uh, and, and has suddenly shown a sense of exigency. A little bit. But, but I think it's fascinating. So the thing that became the focal point on Thursday's hearing was something that already was – to the rest of us in the public was pretty well established by, I think, government statements to journalists that yep. were published a couple of weeks back. In the Washington Post and the New York Times. Whether, in fact, this guy you know, had, had asked, asked for, a for lawyer. his lawyer. And, and of course, that, that was important, but already kind of established, right? right? So, so let's rewind. So at the hearing on Thursday morning, right, Judge Chutkin got very caught up when she asked a government lawyer if, in fact, John Doe, the U.S. citizen who's been detained as an enemy combatant by the U.S. in Iraq for 12 weeks now, had asked for a lawyer. And the government lawyer who was there at the hearing would not answer yeah, the question. Which I, I got to say, I got such a problem with that. You, there's, there's, only, there's only a few details that have already been statements that were made by government officials to reporters at various points during the pendency of this. But that was one of them. Right. And obviously, you, you got to come to court prepared knowing either to that, Either to agree with it or to deny it. Right. It's going to come up. And, it, and it's not okay to not be prepared to answer that. But here, here's my problem. I think it's fine that the judge then got focused on that and said, well, darn it, you're going to give me by 5 o'clock tomorrow, or was it, or five was it the day? day? 5 o'clock that day, you're going to give me a written answer. That's great. Hey, while you're at it, there are a few other questions right. I have that some you more can questions. make them ask. Right. So, Don't stop now. So, so you know, I, I, I respectfully dissent from your suggestion that Judge Chutkin has started acting with a sense of urgency. I actually think she's still moving much slower than – than, if, if you're and my friend Judge Royce Lamberth had this case <laughs> – <laughs> right. This would be going I can. I mean, faster. first of all, Lamberth would have basically held the hearing in abeyance while the government lawyer was marched to a phone right. by a court You've security officer. You've got 30 officer. minutes to go ask a question. Come right. on back. Um, and then Lamberth wouldn't have left it there. Right. And now what happened at the end of the hearing is Judge Chutkin issued a supplemental briefing order on the very questions I think you and I thought were already right. exactly. at the heart of this thing. Completely agree. This is all foreseeable. This is all the stuff. And, and it, even this doesn't necessarily go the full way. She right. hasn't clearly directed them. And apparently – the government needs to be clearly directed to answer very specific questions. About the status of John Doe. Well, now, and here's the thing I most would want to know. How long, on the government's theory, either literally how long do they think has to – how much time has to go by before they have to take steps to find out whether this person wants to pursue habeas? Uh, or if they can't answer that in terms of a number of days, and if they think it's, it's conditions-based, then what in a highly specific way, what is the condition the government claims as right. a legal matter is the trigger for when this citizen's acknowledged habeas rights, which doesn't mean he goes free, no. means it gets reviewed, his acknowledged habeas rights actually start to matter. Right. And the government's position, especially as reflected in the supplemental brief they filed yesterday that you and Marty got into a little bit of a discussion on Twitter about, um, the government's position is that under Boumediene versus Bush, the Supreme Court's 2008 decision about the rights of Guantanamo detainees to habeas, it is a, quote, reasonable time, right, after capture, and that reasonable time hasn't happened yet. Right, and they, they flesh it out a bit more by saying, um, drawing on Hamdi and in Boumediene, there are, there, it's, look, let me say, I completely agree that the council access habeas process does not begin the moment in a combat zone that somebody's captured. And there is clear Supreme Court precedent confirming that there's some amount of, of time. Um, the government's position is that time, and this is drawing on the language of those opinions, um, that time runs until a determination as to whether to hold the person is made. Well, the government's position is, that sounds like that test to me, and I think to Marty as well, and I suspect to you, 
if that's the test, we're past that point. Way past it. They're, they've been holding it for months. The government's response is, well, no, yeah, we're as a starter position. We are. It's it's an extended version of the hybrid model. We're right. we're holding them in national in law of war detention for the time being. But we haven't decided yet. Are we going to prosecute? Are we going to transfer to this person's other country of citizenship? And until or, we make that decision, the right doesn't right. vest. Right, right. which so, uh, can't. Can I- be the rule. Can I? Re- I want to read from the, just. Just. I mean, your paraphrase is correct. I just want to read literally from the government's brief because I think this is a really important point. Yeah. On page eight of the brief the government filed yesterday, it said, "In addition, the government does not intend the detainee's current circumstance to continue indefinitely. Instead, it is diligently working to make a determination regarding this detainee's future status." Okay, good. Congratulations. You don't get to forestall habeas corpus until you've made a final decision about the detainee status, or else there never would have been Guantanamo habeas cases. So I, I think that's, I'm not sure whether that follows that last thing you said, but I agree that it certainly isn't the case that you can just decide, well, we're not sure how long we're going to do this. We, we are actively interested in other possibilities. Um, the, the decision ultimately can't be left in the sole discretion of the executive branch. So, so let me read what Justice Kennedy actually wrote in Bemedian, yeah. right? So the government purports to paraphrase it, and I think misparaphrases it, right? Here. So here's what Kennedy says in Bemedian. He says, in cases involving foreign citizens, these are foreign citizens, right? right. So a fortiori, anything he says is stronger, is a, right? more yeah. rights protected for Doe. Right. It likely would be both an impractical and unprecedented extension of judicial power to assume that habeas would be available at the moment the prisoner is taken into custody. Fine. If and when habeas jurisdiction applies, as it does in these cases, proper deference can be accorded to reasonable procedures for screening and initial detention, right, under lawful and proper conditions of confinement and treatment for a reasonable period of time, right? Here, as is true with detainees apprehended abroad, a relevant consideration determining the court's role is whether there are suitable alternative processes in place to protect against the arbitrary exercise of governmental power. What Kennedy's saying is, listen, take a few days, right, take a week, Right to figure out your initial plan for him, but at some point, not that long thereafter, habeas attaches. Right. So I think it's as as I argued in my my post at Lawfare, this, which this, everyone should read. Thank you very much. And likewise, you, you've got a great thread on Twitter that yeah. goes through the same. Well, I think we're on the same page here. Um, this needs to be a totality of the circumstances, yep. highly fact specific. It, it's not something you're going to be able to say. All right, it's it's eight days and that's it. Right. It sometimes in a combat zone that will make no sense whatsoever. In this case, we're three months into it. Um, apparently for many months, he's been probably somewhere in the Kur- Kurdistan region um, in, a, in an area that there's no reason to think there, there's some exigency. There, there are no other detainees, we've been told that. There's been a DOD statement that there are no other detainees in U.S. custody. So it's not like there's some problem of scale or anything else. Um, there's no claim that's been made in any public setting so far that there's any exigency that's specific to this person's identity, such as a claim that I can imagine might be persuasive for a while in some cases, that we've captured um, X, who is a senior person. Right, high-value detainee. And, and, if, and if it becomes known that X from the network has been captured, then we're going to lose this precious intelligence opportunity. There's no claim of any of that. If and, and so I think what needs to happen here is the government's got to be hauled into court to answer to the judge, and it may have to be in camera, it may have to be ex parte. Who knows what their what their procedures? Right. Do you have, have to some be. reason? There's got to be a real case specific reason as to why this is still going on. But it can't be. Well, we're trying really hard to work up an indictment because we don't want to hold the guy forever. Which, by the way, I think it's true. Right. But that doesn't negate his habeas right. Well, so here's the problem, and and as you and I, I think, have predicted all along, right? The problem is that the government is really capitalizing upon the fact that they haven't identified him. So right. the government's actual legal theory at this point is that jurisdictional discovery is inappropriate, right? Because it wouldn't be issued to the government, it would be issued to the detainee, and it's not appropriate in the context of jurisdictional discovery to ask questions of a non-party. Yeah, no, this is preposterous. <laughs> I, think, I think that is a frivolous argument. So I think it is a meritless argument. I think the problem is it is not clearly foreclosed by doctrine. And this goes back again to why I really wish Judge Chutkin would just put her foot down. Now, on the latest filing and briefing, right? So the judge asked on Friday, after the hearing on Thursday, for the parties to file supplemental briefs about whether she has the authority to issue jurisdictional discovery. Note to everybody, that had always been the question, right? Um, And she gave everybody a week and set a hearing for this Friday, which has since been moved to next Monday, right, because of a conflict for one of the government lawyers. So here we are, right? We're going to have 10 days elapse between the first hearing and the second hearing that are ostensibly about the exact same bloody question. No, that's right. Look, I think what it boils down to is this. 
there's an axiom that I don't think anyone, including the government, would deny. It can't be the case because there is a constitutional right for a citizen to have habeas review of the legal and factual grounds of their detention to make sure it's not arbitrary. It can't be the case that the government, by holding a person incommunicado and cutting off all access to the person, but also not disclosing their identity so that no one else can weigh in, it can't be that that goes on indefinitely. Right. And the government doesn't argue otherwise. It says we just need time. What's in time? There has to be a measure that doesn't depend on governmental discretion I agree. as the answer to how, how much time is And indeed, I mean, I think there's, I mean, there's a Supreme Court case from 1941 called Ex Parte Hull. Um, not the same fact. So in Hull, there was a Michigan prison warden who decided that he would review all detainee prisoner habeas petitions and decide if they were sufficiently meritorious so as to actually be passed along to the district court. Um, and the Supreme Court unanimously said, you have got to be kidding. Right. It is not the job of the executive branch to control when and under what terms those in its custody will have access to the federal courts. There you go. Same idea. Right. And now, I, I feel obliged to add, it, I want to be clear, I think the government very likely would win or may well win on the merits. All the more reason win. not to. That's what makes this, to me, it makes this all so stupid. Uh, it makes me think that it, it must be must be the case that they're not even sure they have the evidence. Well, I was going to say, so so one of the worrisome things about this is the longer they play this out, the more I worry that maybe they're not sure they're going to win. Right. In which case you begin to say, like, well, wait a minute, why are they, you know, right. why are why they, are they digging their heels thing? in on this? Um, I, I have to assume that what's going on here is that, the, okay, so the guy goes over, he's fighting with, let's take it as the government says. He's fighting with the Islamic State. Uh, he turns Sorry, to, as the government has said to reporters. Has said to reporters, exactly. <laughs> so he's fighting with the Islamic State. Uh, he gets turned over to some... Uh, no, he serious, turned himself in. Right. The, a group of them surrender. Turned himself in makes it sound like he, you know, hey, you know, walking off the street. Okay. Rather than being captured in the context of fighting, right? Surrender. Well, we, I don't think we know the details. That. He surrendered, right. right? Okay. So he surrendered one or the other. He, was, he wasn't he, shot and then picked up, right? He, no, he, right. right. Some he, voluntariness went but into it, was, it. But it was a surrender in a combat setting. Fair. Um, two Allegedly. Two forces, right? Uh, so he ends up in uh, Syrian Democratic Forces custody. They they realize they've got this guy. They turn him over to the Americans. Um, it's It seems quite clear that the government, the U.S. government, doesn't have a good uh, evidentiary basis for describing in a court admissible process, or at least a federal rules admissible process, how that unfolded, at least not in a way that's inculpatory. And that's very possibly because whoever it is that took the surrender is some person who could be dead, who could be missing, who could be unidentified, who might not be credible, who's some person they can't have testify for whatever practical reason. Um, and if that's the case, then that problem would extend to habeas showing, where the burden of proof presumably will be a preponderance standard, and the rules of evidence will be relaxed, and hearsay might be admissible. There's still this sort of res ipsa locator kind of quality to it that, like, look, here's this guy. Here's what we know about how we got him. And, and he's not arguing to the contrary that he was sort of a, you know, I was a journalist. Um, it would be very interesting to see as a factual matter what it would look like if that's the state of affairs and the government is held to the habeas <laughs> standard. Right. But at the end of the day, you know, he's a citizen. And one of the consequences is he has the right to that review. Yep. And, and the chips are going to fall where they may. So I just want to take one little opportunity to, to dig at our mutual friend Ben Wittes, right? So, so Ben and I had this back and forth back in early October. Um, about whether this case should alarm anybody, right? Because I had, I had in, in my, you know, sensationalist tendencies had come to the, to the fore a little bit. And I'd written a couple of sort of, you know, angsty blog posts about how I was really worried about this case. And so Ben wrote this response um, on Lawfare where he says, here's why I'm not panicked, right? And his basic gist of the post was that things were going to work themselves out pretty quickly and that there were lots of reasons to expect them to work themselves out pretty quickly. That was eight weeks ago yesterday, yeah, I, so look, that was my position too. I know. And at You've the time come around. on this program, well, no, I, my position hasn't changed. I said right at that time, I know. I'm not worried. I'd imagine this is going to get worked out. I continue to believe they're not trying to push policy here. I agree. That they're they're basically on this sort of uh, inertial drift, right? Um, but at this point in time, I think we're past whatever the murky point of we now need to be questioning the precedent here, pressing hard. And every single day, the case for that gets worse. My view was that was always the case. It's a hydraulic shift over time. Now, I don't know if Ben also is, is, is siding with me on this, but I don't think it's fair to, to give him a hard time for the view, or at least I don't agree that he deserves a hard time for the prior view because I don't think I deserve a hard time for the prior view. My view then, and I think Ben's then, is entirely consistent with being alarmed now. Okay, so 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 at the risk of at the risk of causing trouble, let me just say, <laughs> right? Um, 
I'll leave it to everybody else to decide, right? If it was sufficiently clear, right, in early October that we were headed towards this kind of scenario. I don't think you could reasonably say it was clear. And if you come from the premise that like the government's going to, the Trump administration or whoever's going to do the worst thing if given the chance, then you're going to say, yeah, it's perfectly clear. That's not where I'm coming from I know. on this issue, I know. at least. I know. Um, it was a couple of weeks, it was maybe a week or two after, if we're talking October, we're talking a couple of weeks after U.S. custody, right? I know. It couldn't have been foreseeable then. No one can say that they could foresee that the DOJ wouldn't make the case, wouldn't be able to come up with the case. How could you know? There's every reason to think they probably would. So I guess I, guess I am of the view, and I was of the view at the time, that until and unless a court forced the government's hand, Right, there would be no if if the government hadn't been able to come up with a case in a month, because this is about when we started fighting about this. Right, it's about a month in. um, Then nothing was going to get them to do it until a court until until it was the risk of losing a habeas petition. See, see, I don't think it's a question of will. I think that the problem is. I think they very much want to make the, the, oh, the prosecutorial case. I just think they're finding that it's impossibly hard to do it. And I think that was clear a month in, which is yeah. why. And, and I just yeah, and that's where we disagree. Fair enough. All right. Um, Moving right along, because it's a busy week and there's lots to say, and who knows what else other drama there's going to be. Let's I guess go to the Supreme Court. Oh, wow. Well, this could go to the Supreme Court. Maybe one day it will. Although, if Judge Chuckin has her way, it'll be 2047 before that happens. Ouch. No, she, she's on it now. I think she's on it now. Sort of on it. Yeah, I wish, I wish people could see the look I'm getting from this Ten day, Okay, you had a hearing on the I habeas know, petition. Why do you need 10 days for supplemental briefs when you know what both sides are going to say? Well, I'm just, I just ugh. So, okay. stuff that is at the Supreme Court already. Speaking of things that have moved faster. Yes, indeed. Right? This one certainly has. So, Travel Ban 3.0, right? Um, ah, good example. Travel Ban 3.0 was promulgated two weeks after John Doe was taken into custody by the United States. And your point is? It's already at the Supreme Court. Yeah, there'd been some there'd been some stuff going on already. There'd well, been but this is what I'm saying. Like, look how courts can move. Courts clearly when can they're move. properly motivated. All right. Yep. All right. So um, yesterday, right, uh, as first predicted here on the podcast last week, that's not really true. I'm borrowing the stupid line from part of the interruption. Oh, is that? <laughs> I don't watch the show. I got to. You really do. Yeah. Um, so um, yesterday, the Supreme Court granted the government's applications, plural, for stays of the two injunctions issued by the district courts in Greenbelt, Maryland, and Honolulu against Travel Ban 3.0, the revised, slimmed down, as President Trump says, leaner, politically correct version. Politically correct right? and, and perhaps now legally correct. Perhaps now legally correct. Um, anyway, what happened, everybody, was the Supreme Court stayed the effect of the district court decisions, meaning that the injunctions are lifted, that Travel Ban 3.0 can go into full effect, even though the appeals in both the Fourth and Ninth That's Circuit right are pending. Indeed, one of them is going to be argued this Friday, another one I think next week or the week thereafter. In the meantime, DHS can enforce. Um, And I think the only surprising thing about this move, Bobby, to me, was the vote, right? Um, We don't know how many justices voted for the state. We know at least five voted for the stays. We don't know how many more than that. We know that Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg dissented. And only... Well, so too, we don't. So well, we don't know. We don't know, right? right? I mean, so the, with stays are messy. Opinions you usually know where everybody is because you right. join one opinion or the other. Stays, uh, in a context like this, we know that there are at least five votes for the stays and two against. We right. don't know where Kagan and Breyer are, but there's some reason why they at least didn't join the dissent. Right. Which, and we don't want to read too much into that, and we don't necessarily need to. Is it fair to assume that if there's a majority that was willing to lift the stays and allow enforcement to begin? then it's a serious uphill battle on the merits ultimately to challenge these bans once they get to the court. Right. Um, so, right. So I think the, what, the, right, what this clearly indicates is that um, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy, who folks may recall in June, had joined the more progressive justices in leaving intact right, district court injunctions against travel ban 2.0, at least as applied to those with connections to the United States, have now apparently found less trouble with letting right. 3.0 go into effect. Um, it probably augurs well for the government on the merits, although, of course, we still have to see what the Fourth and Ninth Circuits hold That's right. before we assume what the Supreme Court's going to do. And the passage of time may reveal enforcement hiccups. That's certainly possible. They might change the fact pattern in a way that could impact right. one of the justices. But I guess my reaction to all of this, you know, there are folks on Twitter saying, look, Trump was right all along, right? And look, those of you who criticize the travel ban, you know, are just your crazy resistors, right? And I think folks are missing just how slimmed down and, to quote the president, politically correct, 
3.0 is compared to 1.0 and 2.0. Well, this, is, this kind of reminds me of the military commissions, right? You've had many iterations of the military commissions uh, insofar as the current iteration, and it's a big effort, insofar as they aren't legally problematic. I, I understand questions about that. Um, but that doesn't tell you anything about whether the original iteration 1.0 was, was... Right. I mean, if anything, right, the, the fact that 3.0 has had to come down is itself a concession, right? No, that's um, right. No and so, so one could argue, actually, this is actually a relatively healthy interbranch dynamic between yep. the president and the courts, at least so far. Just, you know, I, stay tuned. We'll see what the final result is. Um, Bobby, speaking of the Supreme Court, they had a busy day, right? Um, we also had last week, right, the Carpenter recap, and then yesterday, um, the well, the New Jersey gambling case we don't care about, but Rubin versus Islamic Republic of Iran, an interesting foreign sovereign immunities case. All right, so I'll say a quick recap on Carpenter. Yeah. There's been there are plenty of other and better sources to get the full details, but it looks like Carpenter's got a, a pretty good chance of winning. The, 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 Easily, a, a bite will be taken out of the third party doctrine. I don't think anybody thinks it's going to be a huge bite, and so the, the interesting question is. Um, exactly how will it be explained? It is almost certainly not going to be explained by most of the justices following the the Gorsuch theory that maybe you have a property right uh, in Cell site location information. business records some company you interact with uh, develops. I, it, there's been lots of you know commentary on that. I won't beat a dead horse. I, I, was, just, I was golf clap and say, nice try. It was, it was it was interesting. Got us all talking. Well, um, no, and, and it was an effort, right? It was it was an effort to compromise, right? It was an effort to sort of in Jones. We talked about this last week, right? In Jones, the majority was able to sort of duck the messier right. third party doctrine question because of the physical because of the physical trespass. Yeah. This was an effort to try to preserve the Jones majority. Yeah, by going to a non physical. Uh, you know, surprisingly proprietary-based concept yeah, of know. other people's uh, information. Well, so that's not going to be it. It's going to be some kind of privacy theory. You know, who knows? Maybe maybe it'll fall apart between now and, and the opinion being issued. But it looks like, uh, as many people predicted, there's going to be a, a, a chunk taken out of the third-party doctrine, which means, Steve, there's going to be a new doctrinal twist in what counts as a search, and there's going to be loads of follow-on litigation across all sorts of different contexts as everyone tries to get the benefit of an extension of the new Carpenter principle, whatever it turns out to be. No, I agree. And so, I mean, I guess I was, you know, I was struck at the argument yesterday that, uh, yesterday, last week, I keep doing this, um, that Chief Justice Roberts really wasn't, um, the ACLU offered this theory that the, that the line should be 24 hours, right? That that historical CSLI should have an expectation of privacy, but that sort of short-term CSLI should not. And the Chief Justice actually really pushed back against that and said, if you think that there's an expectation of privacy in historical CSLI, isn't right. there an expectation of privacy in CSLI? Absolutely. Right. right. How, do you, how do you draw that line? It, it was offered up as a limiting, as a limiting principle, which it is, but how do you really ground right. that in anything objective? You don't. And so I think the, the real question to me is, is this a CSLI-specific yep. decision? Is this a sort of, this was an excessive amount of CSLI decision? Right. Right. Um, here's the problem. If they just go after CSLI, and the reason is because our cell phone. So the chief went off this, on this whole thing about how kind cell phones are. Riley theory. Right. A Riley theory of cell phones are such a part of our society. Yeah. There's plenty of other places where our cell phones interact with the third party doctrine. Yeah, no, that's right. And so I think for, for national security law aficionados, the angle on this, as we mentioned in our last episode, is that uh, you know a lot of intelligence collection goes on through a legal process under the third party doctrine without a warrant. Um, and I think it'll be very interesting once this decision drops, some of the doctrinal development that then, then is going to occur will happen in crim cases. Some that's going to have to happen probably in the, in the context of FISA. And that's going to potentially give rise to some fresh encounters with the proposition that, never mind all this, maybe there's a foreign intelligence exception to the warrant requirement anyways, which is an issue that normally the courts don't have to grapple with because of things like third party. Right. Doctrine. I mean, right. And you and I, as we said last week, right, I mean, whatever else comes of a sort of pro-expectation of privacy decision in Carpenter, it's going to have reverberations in the foreign intelligence surveillance world that the, that the third party doctrine has at least thus far allowed courts and Congress Right, to largely avoid. Yep. Um, speaking of that, right, I mean, I, I, I want to say a quick word about the Islamic, the Rubin yeah, case, yeah. but and then I want to, the, there's actually a really good segue there to 702, which oh, I didn't want to lose. Good. Yes. Right, but quickly on the Rubin versus Islamic. So the Supreme Court yesterday heard a case that nobody really cares about outside of the nerdy world of foreign asset claims. Um, but the question in Rubin versus Islamic Republic of Iran is actually an interesting question about the so called expropriation of property exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. So, short version. Um, you get a claim against a foreign sovereign, 
right? The way you usually enforce the claim is by attaching and executing upon the property of said foreign sovereign in the United States. Right, your bank account, et cetera. Et cetera, right? Um, the problem when it comes to a country like Iran is that all of Iran's assets in bank accounts are already frozen <laughs> and the subject of blocking orders by either the executive branch, Congress, or in some cases, both. Sort of picture all these plaintiffs and plaintiffs' lawyers circling around like this, like, you know, compound where all these valuable assets are held in government custody and like With a, a statute and executive order surrounding them. Exactly. Right? And this is actually what the Bank Markazi case was about last year, was Congress um, dipping into the freeze orders for what, to satisfy judgments in one of the cases. Anyway, so some plaintiffs had this idea that instead of going after Iranian financial assets, they would go after Persian artifacts in the collections of various American museums mm. on the theory that the Persian artifacts, which I believe were on loan to said museums from the government of Iran, had inherent and intrinsic financial value that could be used to satisfy a judgment. And so the question under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is whether you could use this kind of property to satisfy a judgment obtained under the FSIA. Um, the short version is um, the Supreme Court yesterday sounded dubious, right? That, that in fact, we should not be stealing all of these relics from these museums to satisfy tort damages. So that's a bummer for those looking to execute on these judgments. Well, unless Congress comes back and says, never, no, actually, because this would all be statutory interpretation. So maybe Congress says, yeah, Congress actually, actually, those Persian sarcophagi, totally fine. <laughs> um, which, by the way, reminds me 100% of the movie True Lies. Oh, very. So Tia Carrera. Tia Carrera. She's the one that's got the uh, the assets they right. were foreclosed yep. upon. True Lies. Uh, excellent movie, actually. One of one of the better Schwarzenegger films. And, and really some, better. Wait, wait. One better of, Schwarzenegger. One of. I didn't say it was better what, than what, Like top twenty. Certainly top twenty, but he's got like fifty to choose from. I would say it's one of, okay. <laughs> temporary a diversion into frivolity, my friends. Go top five Schwarzenegger films. Terminator. Terminator 1. Terminator 2. Terminator 2. Total Recall. Yeah, that's close for me. I like Total Recall. It's To me, that's right there with True Lies. Twins. Twins is great. Come on. Um, <laughs> Twins is and really then, good. I mean, I don't know. Tonight um, is your night, bro. You know, I'm a fan of The Last Action Hero. I think that's an underrated wow, Schwarzenegger okay. movie. Mm. Um, it's kind of clever. Kindergarten Cop. Uh, let's see, uh, Predator. Predator. Predator is good, although it's Conan. kind of the ensemble. Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer. So Conan the two, have there ever been two more different uh, feeling movies in a franchise like that? Conan the Barbarian, uh, you know, a, a cult classic. Conan the Destroyer with, was it Wilt Chamberlain? Uh, I think that's and, right. And Grace Slick? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, that was not such a great movie. Wait, so I, what movie are we talking about is one of his best movies? True Lies? No. It's fun. Uh, it's I, fun. I think it's in the top five. All right. Uh, bef before we lose everybody, why don't we go back to actual talking about the law? So All right. uh, uh, Ruben vs. Islamic Republic, interesting case to follow. Intersection of Fed course, national security. I'm done. All right. So that leads us uh, over to our, our last serious topic. Just to flag that the, Sometimes we're serious. the countdown is on to the end of the month when Section 702 Collection Authority expires. Don't you have a countdown clock on your wall? We should. We should uh, hang that out the window. People will drive by wondering. Section 702 expires in... Well, so I don't think it's going to. It seems pretty clear in recent days, after, after an endless amount of hand-wringing over the details of this bill from judiciary and that bill from the intelligence community I mean, uh, committee, uh, there has been talk about how, you know, there's not much time on the calendar. I think we're going to... It looks like they're going to attach a bill to some must-move bit of legislation. Much as things get hung on the NDAA, we've got a potential government shutdown coming. There's going to be some must-pass legislation there. Something like that is, is going to move, and it looks like they're going to probably try to attach um, either the, the Senate Intelligence Committee's bill, which is Senate 2010, or the House uh, uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence bill, uh, was at 4478, I think, or 4487. I forget which. In any event, um, neither of these bills are clean renewals or permanent renewals, but um, they've, they've got a lot less in the way of change and reform attached to them. And in particular, they, they don't do nearly as much as the judiciary bills would on questions about so-called backdoor, backdoor searches, search and inquiry. Right. Right. So uh, I think um, some of the stuff I've been hearing and seeing suggests that the Senate bill is probably the one that will end up with the most momentum and the most leverage behind it. Um, just a few highlights on this. It's an eight-year extension currently, uh, eight-year extension to 2025. So we can play this game on episode. That was a facepalm. What was that episode? Uh, that'll be, well, can you do the math? 
We'll uh, still be broadcasting, no doubt. 416, and that'll be episode 450. Well, assume some emergencies. 474. Right, right, right. So uh, there's, uh, there's a window in this one that will allow about collection to return. Um, but only with 30 days notice to Congress. And then there's some procedures to make sure there's a fast track if Congress wants to try to pass legislation to disapprove and disallow it. Um, There's there's stuff about, I thought this was interesting, uh, clarifying uh, the ability to pay money to amicus, to amici, and to tech tech advisors appointed to help the court in the FISA process, which no doubt will help. Um, there's clarification about when amicus can get involved. There's, uh, pr- there's some specification on when the fruits of 702 collection can be used in criminal cases. There's a listing of sort of the types of crimes that can be charged, where it'll be permissible to try to introduce this information. Um, there's a bunch of stuff by way of data disclosure regarding um, queries of U.S. person information and so on and so forth. Um, there's some requirement of review of the process of doing those queries, getting the FISC involved in, in reviewing that. But I think, I think you it's, know, pretty, it's pretty marginal stuff, though. Uh, it, it's marginal. It's definitely not what the, the people who are wound up about backdoor collection are certainly not Including satisfied. Including plenty of folks on both judiciary committees. Yeah, but, well, you know, that's right. This is certainly not a unanimous action. This is, this is I think, a party line vote. Uh, sounds like it. But I guess my, my question is, I mean, does this, an authority as, that's as important and as controversial as 702, does this strike you as the right way to run this particular railroad? I think that the baseline of how Congress runs all of its railroads is, is such a mess that this looks like a not terrible surprise. I think contra- it's not a surprise. Look, contra- we've here. This reminds me a little bit of the Patriot Act debates in the fall of 2001, where it was often said, like you know, it was all kind of ramrodded through at the last minute, which is what people will probably say about this. But the reality is, certainly in this case, and there this was true to a, to some extent with the Patriot Act as well. Um, whatever the sort of fast-moving vehicle, the train they latch onto at the last minute, these bills have been around. We've been debating this all falls. Many people have been debating this for a full year. It's not something that's coming out of nowhere and no one knows what's in it, like the tax bill from the other day. The contrast there is oh, dramatic. You don't get me started on the tax well, look, bill. So I just want to say that I think it's perfectly fine to criticize the, the, the Intel Committee bills on the merits for for not going further on things, whether whether your bugaboo is unmasking or backdoor searches. Um, but I think process-wise, um, the complaint one can always make about attaching something to not very germane, must-move spending bills, th- that's always there to complain about. And that's not good government to do it that way. But in terms of like ambush or, or bringing up stuff that otherwise, you know, people aren't sure what it's even about, I don't think that attaches here. So I th- that's all I've got to say about that. We'll see what actually happens. It may go some other different direction. Yeah, so, so I just want to say, I mean, my frustration and disappointment is that there were numerous moments when Congress was debating Bobby, what became the USA Freedom Act, right? Um, especially in the fall of 20, was it 14, right? When the Leahy bill almost made it through the Senate only to not survive a filibuster by Rand Paul, right? And then June 2015, when they ultimately enact a pretty watered down version of the Freedom Act, where all of these big questions about surveillance reform and about how the Snowden revelation should, re- should prompt us to revisit structural questions about the relationship between Congress, the executive branch, and the courts when it comes to intelligence, operations, and oversight, that the better time to have that conversation, Bobby, was going to be in the context of the 702 reauthorization debate, right? Because there'd be more time, there'd be a clear deadline, there'd be less of an obvious provocation of illegality, right? And so all of these people in, the, in November of 2014 and in May and June of 2015 said, these are valid concerns. This is an important conversation. Let's have it, right, in the fall of 2017 when we reauthorize 702, and it hasn't happened. Yeah, well, you know, this could be a situation where what they'll do in the end is actually not an eight-year renewal. If there's enough pushback, maybe they'll do like they did with uh, – in, in 2000, was it 2007 or with the original Protect America Act, right. which is the progenitor statute, right. where they give it like a one-year extension and they try to get this back on the calendar for further discussion later. Um, I mean, I think if there's a comp- the best compromise, I think, would be like a four or five year. And even then, the point my, my point is that the all of the folks who were promising 
to get the USA Freedom Act out of the out of conference, out of committee, right, to get it to the president's desk. All the folks were promising that we would have these conversations when it came time to do 702 reauthorization were full of crap. Could be. And Could that's be. Just, and that's to me, or, Bobby, that's just, that's or disappointing. That they, or that they thought in good faith that this debate was going to occur. The debate has been occurring. Now the legislative I mean you're again it's not the case they're not debating. They're fiercely debating this stuff. Yeah. And now there's going to be, there's a window where the leadership looks like they think they can attach one of the bills to something that people are going to vote for. It's, it, to me, the thing that's fair to complain about is it's always fair to complain about hanging non-germane stuff on a must-pass funding bill. Right. That's a different deal. But there's certainly been debate. Um, have you seen any newspaper stories lately about the 702 reauthorization? Newspaper stories? Yeah. I don't know. Mostly online. There's a lot of stuff happening online. On the blogs. But I mean, like, the, yeah. But like the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, USA I, it, Today. I, be, I, look, I, I, don't know, I don't know what they're printing um, or how yeah. much content, but I actually think you probably find a pretty fair amount. Yeah, I think you, I, you might be surprised. All Could right. be. Anyway. Speaking of being surprised, let's surprise our listeners with a witty entertaining rundown of both bowl predictions and holiday movie ideas. So we're only we're not doing all bowls, we're just doing the, the playoffs. Uh maybe we should keep it for now to just to the, the playoffs. playoffs yeah. So I think what the first game is Clemson, Alabama, and the second game is Oklahoma and Georgia. Lots yeah. of red and orange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no a, blue. The fix was in. The fix was in. Okay, Clemson and Alabama. Uh first of all we of course have to discuss should Alabama even be in that game? So I am going to offer the relatively preposterous observation that the right team to have gotten the fourth playoff spot was one of, right, USC or UCF. Uh, so I think UCF's strength of schedule just can't justify it. But, but, USC, but they've got one thing that nobody else in the country has. Yeah, yeah. A zero in the last column. Yeah. But I know. It's not a very impressive that, zero. That was my provocation. Yeah. USC, though, if you actually blind – if you did a blind taste test – of the resumes of USC, Ohio State, and Alabama, you actually find plenty of people picking USC. Here's the problem. There's n- they're a two-loss team, right? Yeah. There's never- so, is, so is Ohio State. Right. And neither one's in. There's never been, in, in the limited number of years, but there's, what, we have like four years? There's never been a two-loss team. In. Yeah, but there's that's a matter of time. Been. Well, maybe, maybe not. But- well, you know, I mean, that's true. I mean, that Alabama, that, that close game they played against Mercer. <laughs> Look, at the end of the day, Alabama did play a lot of good, tough teams. USC beat seven FBS top 50 teams this year. Seven. And who did they lose to twice? Well, that's a fair point. Right. So, I, look, I think this but, is— this but Stanford's is, smart. All of these, yes. After, at the end of the day—oh, by the way, Stanford's going to play TCU in the Alamo Bowl, which is—oh, that one's mine, I think. Or is that yours? That's mine. Yeah, we're dropping phones in here in the studio. We're, we're so upset. <laughs> we're focused so much. TCU Stanford and TCU. Stanford in the Alamo Bowl, which uh-huh. is pretty awesome. But back to the, the, the Alamo the Bowl. Another, another Texas team traveling far. Exactly. You know, look, it's a good four-hour drive. And with I-35, sometimes that's like <laughs> six or eight hours. You never know. Um, I think that this just validates the whole deal with you're trying to avoid a situation where there's someone who really ought to be in the title game and doesn't even have a shot. I think we're safely away. I don't think anyone can fairly say that, damn it, USC or Ohio State or Alabama, that any of them, it would be an outrage if we were in the old system with just a title game. So I have a radical radical proposal. Here's my radical proposal. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Radical proposal. Eight-team playoff. Sure. Uh, Champions, right? Teams that win the championship game of the five power conferences automatically in. Yeah. Okay. Three slots, right. one of which has to go to a champion of a non-Power 5 conference. How about if they're ranked, have to hit a certain ranking threshold? Same, right, same thing for right. like, so, so there's already criteria for how UCF gets into a New Year's Day Bowl, right? right. Take those criteria and apply right. to, they get into the, they get into the eight. No, right, but on this model, Ohio State and USC get in and so does UCF. Right, Alabama probably gets in as the highest ranked non-conference champion. And then Wisconsin, right, and Auburn, Auburn. right, probably have decent shots as the last, I've lost track of how many we have, but like as the last couple teams into the mix. Right, well, or Georgia, right? Uh, Well, Georgia's in, they won the SEC. Yeah, yeah, right, sorry, yeah, got that mixed. Um, So 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 you you have the five conference champs, right, and then you'd have UCF, You'd have Alabama. And two at-larges. And you'd have probably two or three right, at-larges. Wisconsin or Auburn as the, as the no, eighth team. It's fantastic. And, and I think that's where it needs to head to. But, Bobby, it's, it's too much time out of class for these student-athletes. The student-athletes. That's why we can't do it. Well, you know, partly what we need to do is, in doing that, make sure they do what they did with the, the college football playoffs, which is to cannibalize a bunch of the existing good bowls right. and make them, totally. make them those games. Totally. 
And the number of people who will get an extra game, well, it's going to be limited. If it's really a problem, then get rid of some of the cream puff stuff. The, the toilet goes bowls. On early. Yeah, the, the st- no, I mean like earlier in the year oh. when, they, when, when Division One teams play sacrificial lambs. Although sometimes the sacrificial lambs come and eat the lamb. It's not, if, but if this is the price we got to pay know, to get know, that playoff. All right. Uh, and we said we would leave folks with a couple of holiday movie recommendations. Not for forthcoming movies because obviously everyone's going to go see The Last Jedi. Um, I am especially excited about The Post, the movie about the, the, the Tom Hanks movie about the Pentagon Papers case. Oh, yeah. That'll, that'll be pretty timely. And, and, and just because Karen and I are saps, Pitch Perfect 3. Oh, hey, uh, the kids were watching Pitch Perfect 2 this weekend. Yeah. I caught a couple, Underrated movie. I caught a, a, a lot of it, and I got to say, uh, Das Sand Machine. Das Sand. Das Sand Machine is pretty good. You know who my favorite actress in the world is? I do not. Brigitte Sjørensen. Is, is she the, the female lead of Das Sand Machine? She is the female lead of Das Sand Machine, and also in the hard home episode of Game of Thrones, right? She's the, the woman um, uh, wildling. Oh, that's fantastic. I did not know that. Oh, oh yeah, that's I, I kinda, good. I, I, secret to everybody except my wife who kind of knows this. I kind of love Brigitte Sjornsson. Okay, so I can't believe you managed to connect Pitch Perfect 2 with Game of Thrones. That's fantastic. You're welcome. Okay, um, I think we should just close out by identifying you know, a couple. Are there any Christmassy, holiday, you know, vacation-y themed, winter-themed movies you make a point of always seeing? Like you're... It, it, you know, when it's this time of year, like, you know, we got to make sure we watch something. So so Karen and I mutually have one absolute Christmas movie, even though we're Jewish, right? Um, Love Actually. There's hey! Just, there's something. There's, it's not really a holiday movie. Oh, but I think it is. Look, um, the, the the song, it's it's all about Christmas and the connection between Christmas. Christmas is all around you. <laughs> Come on and let it snow. snow. I start to say shit. Like, you know. um, so we also have that in our we, – we will never miss watching it. Um, so let's real quick break down some Love Actually, okay? Uh, a lot of different plot lines. What's your favorite of the sub, of the themed plot lines and which one's the one you like least? Or which character you like the most, which do you like least? So I will say I have, I have some problems with all of Love Actually, right? There's someone wrote an article about this a couple of years ago about how if you actually think about Love Actually, all of the relationships are oh, they're like pretty, – They're pretty in, messed up. Well, they're pretty messed up in a very sexist way with unequal power relationships mm-hmm. with like mm-hmm. dominant man and, and subordinate woman. You're, are you saying that Love Actually – Actually, this year when everybody's rewatching it, it's going to read a little different. I, I feel like folks who have not already had the glass shatter in their love actually, like we still watch it for the entertainment value. Sure, no. and because the scene where the guy is standing in the street holding the cue cards the and like, I mean, come well, on, man, so, that rips out your heart. Okay, so no, well, let me pick on that one because I totally agree with you. That obviously, there's a lot of uh, you know. By the way, the right answer to the best relationship is 100% Colin Firth and the Portuguese um, person. <laughs> it's, it's the only one that actually. You know, seems to be going well, right? right. Out of all these, they actually uh, love each other. The, the most, and of course, the most, uh, the most for a film that's you know pretty laugh out loud funny in many parts. The part that, that I always find is really hard to watch. It's you know the the disaster of uh, you know you got Elizabeth um, Thompson. What's her name? Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson. Emma yeah. Thompson. Elizabeth Thompson. Emma Thompson and um, Alan Rickman. And Alan Rickman yeah. and and the the ridiculous situation, which you know I think it's actually some good filmmaking. They it's so funny with bits like when he's trying to buy the necklace, necklace. and. Um, and Mr. Bean is the, yeah, right, the <laughs> and, he, and he's sort of just constantly slow rolling it. Um, the, the Billy Bob Thornton as the president, as the U.S. president. Yeah, but the emotions when, when she figures it out, I mean, she's such a good actress. I know. It's so it's, painful it's, to it's, watch. It's, so, so as I get older and more, I guess I don't know something. It, 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 it sort of. I don't like it as much, but it's still a must holiday watch. Oh, I, I just love it. I think right. it's great. Um, oh, but let me just say, like please. about about the I don't know the name of the actors involved, yeah. but the, you know, so the friends where he's in love with Keira Knightley and yeah. he's doing the cards. Um, what the hell, man? This is your best friend. And so you decide that in order to like get over your own hangups, you're going to go to your best friend's house, indulge this elaborate trick so you can declare your love. So she knows. Just so she knows. You're, you're not asking yeah. anything of her. You just want her to know. Are you? Are you not asking something You're not. He her? says enough now. He it, says enough well, Enough yeah. now as in I have. I, she knows how I feel. I can go to bed at night. Yeah, and how's she and now how what have you done to that marriage, your best friend's marriage? You know, it seems yeah, to me that's a right. that's a hell of a thing to give himself a, a good that's, night's sleep. That's an alienation of affection tort waiting to happen. There you go, there you go. So there's right. my critique. Holiday movies part two. All um, right. question whether this is a holiday movie. Die hard. Yes. 
It's a Christmas movie. I'm on the <laughs> yes, it counts. I think it's a no-brainer. There's there's lots and lots that that uh, Christmas you know enters into it in various ways. What do you think? Are you on that team? Yeah, and Die Hard is just so good. Die Hard is great. I, I haven't watched it in a while. That's going to go on the list for mm-hmm. this year. Also, Alan Rickman. I'm noticing a theme. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. You know, what about um, what about Elf? So you know, we've talked about this before. I'm not a big fan of stupid funny. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so for Will Ferrell... So Will Ferrell movies? Well, no, no. So, so Will Ferrell movies fall into two kinds of funny, right? There's stupid funny and there's like no actually clever funny. Right, right. Right? Like Anchorman actually has both, which yeah, is yeah. why I think it has more appeal than a typical Will Ferrell movie. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah. I'll, I'll grant you that. Uh, we like Elf. Um, uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. So not my favorite. I love Original yeah. Vacation. I think European Vacation is pretty good, although a little bit... A little bit more forced, and I think Christmas Vacation is too forced, but Heather loves it, and so I'll pay for having made that claim. Fair enough. Um, I'm trying to think what else is in the in the Christmas. Um, Any, I mean, there are the classics, which I don't really love. It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're a little slow, yeah. um, I have to admit. No, they're classics. They are. Um, you know, Holiday Inn has one Titanic flaw in it, which is there's a, there's a blackface skit. Yeah. You know, where right. I don't know if you've ever seen Holiday Inn. No. And uh, I think in some versions, like when it's played, I think sometimes they bodlerize it and they just cut that that deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly once you once you do that, the the remainder of the film that's if you if you like kind of classic song and dance old Hollywood films, that's got lots of Christmas classic songs in it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think so. You know, Karen and I, I think our, our big our big movie outings are probably going to be to the theater, not to the TV this this yeah. holiday season. When we're home, I think we'll be watching The Crown. Well, there is a Christmas thing in theaters. It's the uh, it's the Dickens film. Yeah, I forget what it's called, but that actually looked pretty good. Yeah. So so. But I'd rather watch Scrooge. I was gonna say. So and, and I would rather one of watch Bill Murray's funnier movies. And I would rather watch Last Jedi, right? Although I'm gonna be, I'm just gonna say it now, I'm gonna be disappointed by the Last Jedi. I, I am, prepared, I have low expectations. I, yes. I'm really gonna be surprised if it's if it's as good as it should be. Although keep in mind, in the first three, right, the second one was the best one. I know. Um, and then I'm really excited for the post. And I'm really excited for Pitch Perfect three, and that will be, I think, the the the. I, I don't think I'm gonna have much more time for holiday movie watching, given that I've got this pesky little Supreme Court argument thing coming up. You you do need to stay on task. And on that note, let's get back to task. Task. Government's brief is coming in Thursday. I gotta get ready. Panic. <laughs> Let's go have lunch. Uh, Done. All right, so everybody, uh, hopefully we will not talk to you again until next week. But, hey, it's 2017. Anything can happen. Stay safe out there. Sorry for the scratchy voice. Adios.